Trinitas, today we're going to talk about the human tendency to beg for and to ask for signs from God. I have uh, encountered this many times in my ministry, people seeking signs from the Lord. I'll bet at some point in your life, you ask the Lord for a sign. And it's funny, very often when we do this, I find that it's for some of the most mundane things. It's things like, Lord, give me a sign if this person's really my soulmate. Or it'll be requests for signs, maybe even about things that God has already spoken to. And yet, there is this sense of need that God should meet us right where we are at in the moment with some spectacular indication of his will. We're going to talk all about this tendency and some of the sinful, sinful elements at the root of it. And we're going to talk about the way the gospel really answers to our deepest needs for a sign. Uh, even in ways that is often unappreciated, but nevertheless clear. And given that that's a tough message, let us go to the Lord in prayer to ask him to open our hearts to the teaching of his word before we read it. So please, bow your heads with me. Mighty God, all of us, every one of us in this room, we have a tendency to complain, to bemoan our circumstances, And to act as if, Lord God, your word is distant. As if you yourself are cold and you're not speaking to us. Too often, Lord, it is because we are like those who first witnessed your ministry. Our ears are closed. Our eyes are shut to the things that you have so clearly revealed. Knowing that this is a tendency of our heart, we pray that you would remove it now so that we would be able to hear the teaching of your word about a difficult matter like speaking in tongues. And that we might be able to derive much benefit from your word, from the teaching from it. In Jesus' name we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Trinitas, if you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 18 to 25. When I'm finished reading, I'll say this is God's word. You can respond, thanks be to God. We'll give thanks to the Lord for the inspired scripture, singing a short verse, the Gloria Patri. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 18. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written... By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an ungifted man enters, he is convinced, convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. This is God's word. Trinitas Church, we spoke at great lengths last Sunday about the nature of the gift of tongues. We saw that it was a miraculous ability especially bestowed on the early church to speak in languages formerly unknown by the speaker. 
Even after having gone through in great depths the nature of this gift, a looming question remains surely for many of you, which is this, why in the world did God bestow this gift and what was the purpose of it? Why? Very often the answers that we receive are exactly contrary to what the Bible says. On the one hand, we can say that the sign of tongues was given as a positive sign to indicate and to confirm the message of the gospel, to confirm the teaching of the apostles. Many times in the New Testament we read that God was confirming the message taught by Paul and Barnabas by signs and wonders. That Paul has the signs and markings of an apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And Hebrews 2, 3 says that those who testified to the gospel, those first witnesses, the apostles... God testified with them by signs, wonders, and spiritual gifts. And so, surrounding the apostolic ministry was a great manifestation of spiritual gifts everywhere they went. Paul opens his letter to Romans saying, I long to impart to you a spiritual gift. Apparently, where the apostles went, they were known for imparting these gifts by their very presence. And so, it confirmed their message. You might ask, how could Paul know what he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, which is that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Speaking in tongues, whereas some modern thinkers argue a spiritual gift manifested in private, a private prayer language, how would Paul know that he has experienced this more than anyone else? The answer is simple. The gift is not primarily a private thing, but a public sign to be manifested, and Paul knew that this sign especially accompanied the apostolic ministry. But this leads us to what is the more surprising element of this passage. It is precisely this, maybe you've never heard this before, the reason why the gift of tongues was manifested in such great proportions in the early church was because it was to be a sign of judgment to unbelieving Israel. You ever heard this? No one in the world today who emphasizes spiritual gifts talks about the gift of tongues being a sign of judgment for a particular people. And the fact is, the verses that I just read would be incomprehensible to you unless you knew your Bible, and to be more accurately, you knew the themes of the Bible. I want to commend a few families in this church who I know are doing this Bible through a year, you know, read the Bible in a year thing. I believe the Zions and the Farrells or the Kaminsky's, I think several families are doing this read through the Bible thing. To get Paul's argument, you've got to know your Bible. And here it is. Paul's argument is that God throughout human history, especially with his covenant people Israel, when they quit listening to words... He has to start speaking to them ironically through a language they do not understand. When Paul says that speaking in tongues are a sign for unbelievers, he quotes a verse from Isaiah 28, 11 to 12, where God says to his people, he will speak to his people through stammering lips in foreign tongues. Paul says that the law itself teaches us that when God's people refuse to listen to words in their own language, he will begin to speak to them through foreign nations who ironically will instruct them in a language that they do not understand and evoke obedience because it is married to the threat of a sword. 
God said this in Deuteronomy 28, 49. The Lord will bring a great nation against you from afar. That is, if you do not keep the covenant with me from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand shall overtake you. Here's the ironic thing. In the age of Isaiah, that's the 7th century, 8th century BC. In the time of Jeremiah, that's the 5th and 6th century BC. These prophets came speaking to God's people in their mother tongue, Hebrew, declaring to them the will of God and they would not listen. The last sign that these people receive is this indication that because you will not hear me in words you understand, I will send a nation against you who you don't understand. And the funny thing is, they might sound as if they are speaking incomprehensible things, but when they motion your hand, their hand and say, go in a chain gang to our country where you will go into exile, you will obey because they will enforce it with a sword. It is a frequent thing throughout the Bible that when people are done listening to words, God instructs them and overtakes them with a foreign nation. This began at the Tower of Babel. God had told mankind to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. At the Tower of Babel, it says they were all gathered together as one on one project in one region, disobeying the express command of God. And that is when, by miracle, God creates a scenario where there are a multiplicity of languages. And let me tell you something, friends. If you were to look around this room right now and everybody spoke a different language, you would very quickly find the person who spoke yours and you would go and form a society with that person. Because everybody else would seem off limits to you. The question, therefore, is what relevance does this have to the first century Jesus' ministry and the book of 1 Corinthians? Well, the answer is simple. We've already argued several times in this sermon series that the apex of the prophetic ministry came in Jesus Christ. The greatest prophet, the greatest wonder worker who did more signs, healings, exorcisms, and wonders than any prophet had come. And Israel still would not listen to their Christ, their great prophet, their great priest, their great king. We've got to pay close attention to why they rejected this Messiah of theirs to understand this mysterious sign of tongues. The answer is actually very simple. They wanted a Messiah who would validate them rather than save them. To put it in terms that are familiar, uh, it's something like this. They wanted Batman to come, but they wanted Batman to come to them as if they were Robin. As if they were Robin, who had done much to advance the work of Batman positively on their own. Maybe even gotten Batman out of a few binds. Of course, not detracting from the superiority of Batman. But they wanted to be acknowledged, as it were, as Jesus' right-hand man. The reason why Israel crucified Jesus and rejected him is because he exposed them not as Robin, but as the Joker. He exposed them as a people who needed salvation just as badly as every other nation in the world. By the same right, this Jewish people wanting to be Robin didn't so much want to see all the nations of the world saved so much as they wanted to be number two in bringing about that salvation. Do you see the difference? There's a difference between wanting the nations to be saved and wanting yourself to be something of a co-savior. 
Jesus came preaching a gospel in word and deed that began with this bad news. All men are desperate sinners, including God's covenant people, Israel, including you and me. He taught this in so many ways, chief of which is indicting the most perfect Hebrew people, the Pharisees, for themselves still being the worst of sinners. Jesus, therefore, came not to validate Israel, but to die for Israel's sins and to save his people. Jesus, therefore, also in a variety of ways, taught salvation by faith alone, not by faith in becoming a Jewish person. Israel wanted to save the nations by getting all the nations to be just like them culturally and in terms of their practice and in terms of their customs. Jesus throughout the Gospels, therefore, will frequently bless and heal and save sinners, Gentiles, and the ceremonially unclean and declare that these people have a greater faith even than Israel. There's not a more powerful way to declare salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Jesus was implicitly declaring you are saved not by obtaining a new language like Hebrew or to this day Greek or Latin. You are not saved by the pilgrimages that you might make to a holy city, whether Jerusalem, Rome, Constantinople, or even Protestants, Wittenberg. You're not going to be saved in part by your kosher diet or even a faithful Roman Catholic diet where you manage to eat ham every Easter, you're not going to be saved by any rite of circumcision. You're going to be saved by Christ alone, through faith alone. The Jewish people, when they heard this in plain speech, when they heard this in signs and wonders, it was never enough for them. We read that some of the scribes and the Pharisees, even after Jesus had fed 4,000 people by multiplying bread, say, teacher, we want a sign from you. Jesus says, evil and adulterous generation, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Do you know what that means? If you know the story of Jonah the prophet, the sign is not just that he goes into the belly of a whale for three days and comes out, but what does Jonah do after he leaves the whale? He leaves the people of Israel and goes and preaches the gospel to Gentile nations. Jesus is clear about the sign. The sign given to a people who rejects the Savior, who speaks to them in her own language, will be that that Savior will go out from that people and save the nations. But Israel will not. Jesus announced in no uncertain terms in the last week of his life that God will take the kingdom away from you, O Israel, and it will be given to a people producing the fruit of it. It will be given to the nations. When you understand this, you can appreciate what the sign of tongues was all about. Israel said, we want a kingdom where the common language will be Hebrew. We want a kingdom where the common practice will be Jewish. And the sign of tongues says this, it will not be that way. God says, I will fill people with foreign languages, declare my salvation and my revelation in these other languages to let you know my kingdom will not be bound to this ethnicity and her customs. Many will point out that Jesus never spoke in tongues. There's a reason for that because it was the last sign to be given. It is a sign to be given after a people have rejected the prophetic word, rejected the prophetic ministry, to let them know that the word is going out. 
So you might ask the question, what does this have to do with the church in Corinth that was nowhere near Israel? What does this sign have to do with them? Well, the answer is simple. When Paul would go about preaching the gospel in every town, he would go to the synagogue first, the Jewish people first, to declare to them that salvation to the nations has come in the Messiah. Therefore, you will note every single time in the Bible the gift of tongues is mentioned, there are Jewish people present. In Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, always, that this sign would be received. In the Corinthian ministry, it was no different. Many of you might remember when we began this sermon series, we went through Acts 18 when Paul first preached in Corinth. Here's what we read, that he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath with the Jewish people about how their Messiah had come and he was using familiar language and speech. But he's met with fierce opposition. It says they resisted and they blasphemed. So Paul throws up his hands and says, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. And then you have this Corinthian Christian church where these wonderful sign gifts flow out in incredible abundance. We read that the leader of the Jewish synagogue by the name of Crispus actually converted to Paul's ministry and to the Christian message. He became a believer. And many of the Jewish Corinthians believed as well. When Crispus converted. In that same chapter we read that the first Corinthian church was actually next door to the synagogue. If you can think of a strip mall, I don't know exactly how uh, Greek societies or Greek cities work. But you had the synagogue and the Greek literally says that the new church that the Christians had shared a wall with the synagogue. You can imagine that was a bit uncomfortable. It was not only a bit uncomfortable, but um, Paul settles there for one and a half years teaching the word to them, and his ministry is full of signs and wonders. It's not surprising that persecution was directed against the Christians. The Jews actually take legal action against Paul and his ministry, noting to the proconsul of the region, a man named Gallio, that this religion of Christianity has not been formally recognized by the Roman state, and they shouldn't be allowed to practice it. Might sound weird to you, but there's many countries in this world, even in Europe, where religions have to be recognized before you can practice them. We read that Gallio wants nothing to do with it. He's only annoyed by the Jews. He allows the Christians to continue practicing, and so they lash out in violence, even physically beating up Sosthenes, another leader of the synagogue who has become a Christian. Paul, therefore, begins his letter saying, Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. He mentions this near martyr to add a little bit of clout to all that he's saying. You can understand now why this gift of tongues was so prominent in this church, right next to a synagogue, to let the Jewish people who had rejected the gospel know that God is going out to the Gentiles. Paul opens the book of 1 Corinthians alluding to this continued demand for a sign from the Jewish people. Saying, indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. And it is to this that Paul says in 14.22, what we just read. So then tongues are a sign not to those who believe but to unbelievers. That's hardened unbelievers who won't hear the gospel in their own language. Tongues are for them. It is an undesirable sign. It's in this context that Paul offers a rebuke to the Corinthians. 
He says to the Corinthians, why front load your ministry? Why have it orbit around a sign that is actually for hardened unbelievers? Why are you so excited about this sign that is actually only meant to kind of be the last witness to a people being rejected? He says that the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues. What about another type of unbeliever? Those who are ungifted. The Hebrew word is idiotes. We get our word idiot. Means someone who's uninformed, doesn't get what this phenomenon is about. What if that type of unbeliever comes in? Will they not say that you're mad? Corinthians, why would you make your ministry orbit around this thing that speaks judgment and rejection? He says, but if all prophesy in an unbeliever or uninformed man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he'll fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Trinitas, it would be childish for us to be fascinated with things that are wonderful and exciting, but ultimately speak judgment and rejection. This sign of tongues, the end that it pointed to was fulfilled in A.D. 70, when the kingdom was taken from Israel. The Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem, took from her her temple, her priesthood, her political sovereignty. And frankly, Jerusalem has never actually had political sovereignty run by the Jews ever since. Even today, the city is divided into Palestinian and Jewish portions. Today, the majority of the people who believe in the promises of the Hebrew Bible, the promises of the kingdom, are not Jewish. There are only 14 million Jews in the world. Not even all of them believe there are 2 billion Christians. What that means is that for every one Jew, if all 14 million of those believed the promises of the Old Testament, there are 143 non-Jewish people who believe them. Has not the kingdom been taken from them? It's noteworthy that the sign of tongues has never been such a prominent aspect of the church's ministry since that first generation. Now, there's a man named John Chrysostom. Many of you know the name Charles Spurgeon. You know he's one of the great preachers of the world. But before there was Spurgeon, there was John Chrysostom, easily the most popular, most well-known preacher of the first four centuries of the church. Chrysostom says this in his commentary in 1 Corinthians 14. This whole passage is very obscure because the obscurity arises from our ignorance of the facts described, which, though familiar to those to whom the apostle wrote, have ceased to occur. Once the reality has come and the Jewish nation has lost her kingdom, what would be the need of this continuing sign of judgment? At this, many people would say, but Brant, then what does this passage have to do with us? I have three simple applications for you, and they're applications and warnings in a certain sense. Here they are. Trinitas Church, hope and pray for the ends of Christ's kingdom more than you pray to be the means. Pray for the ends of the kingdom more than you pray for an exalted role to be the means. The point is very simple. Israel didn't want the salvation of the nations nearly so badly as she wanted to be something of a co-savior. Let me put this in very simple terms for the rest of you who are not Israel. Is your deepest desire to be the best mom or to have believing children? Those are not the same thing. 
in your ambition to be the best mom, to be a great sidekick as it were, to be Robin as it were, you will be disinclined to admit your failures. You will be disinclined to be humble. When in fact, more than your children need perfection, they need a mom who has the faith to plead God's mercy, the mercy of a savior on her behalf as well as her family. That is what your household needs. Kids, every kid in here, look up here. If you're in this room, look up here. Maybe you guys all think I've just been talking to the adults this whole time. I want to tell you something. Listen to me, kids. Have you been trying to be the best son or daughter in the whole world? Or have you been trying to make your parents glad? There's a difference between those two things. I want to take the pressure off you all, kids. Listen, the very best son has already come, and you're not even close. His name's Jesus. So let's take that off the table. The best son has already come, and here's the thing. Your job is not to try to be the very best kid ever. Your job is to make your parents glad, and what this means is that when you are trying to be the best kid, you probably won't admit to your parents when you've done something sinful, when you've lied, when you've taken, when you've stolen... You'll bend the truth for your benefit. Kids, listen to me. It's going to bring your parents so much more joy if you admit to them when you have a fault or a failure. You admit you need a savior so that they can pray for you. There's a difference between being the best kid and making your parents glad. Men, have you been begging God that he would make you a better provider? Or have you prayed that God would provide? Those are not the same thing. There's a secret desire in every single one of us men to be the hero. Or at least to be the hero's sidekick. When in fact what your kids need to see more than you being a hero is they need to see God provide in spite of you just as much as they need to see you be a hard worker. They need to know they have a father bigger and above you. And I'm going to tell you guys something. If you keep praying to be the means as opposed to praying for the ends, you're actually begging for a very unwelcome sign. God will shower the very gifts that you think come from you being the means on people who don't work nearly as hard as you. You're going to be frustrated by it. You're actually going to see people who have kids who are maybe more obedient than yours, who are actually in many respects more disciplined and godly, and you're going to say, well, I've been working so hard to be the means to that end, but God would have you know that he can give his ends by his sovereign power and grace in spite of of you and me. And every one of us here needs to know that he can do that. And the people of Israel needed to do that. And the sign of tongues declared that. I have a simple exercise for all of you. Examine your prayers. How many of them are really just all about you? Maybe if they're not all just all about you. How many of them, your most fervent prayers, are mainly about you? How many of us are praying, Lord, make me a great teacher? Versus, Lord, may the nations be taught. May my neighbors be taught. May the people of this land believe. 
When you reorient your prayers like this, not only would you be praying in accordance with God's will, but there are some very practical benefits. The first of which is that you can celebrate when less dedicated people get the ends of the kingdom. You'll actually go, this is awesome. This is proof that God is a gracious giver who can give to people the ends of the kingdom in spite of their lack of ability. And it means he can do the same for me. Praise the Lord. I'm glad my neighbors benefit. Secondly, um, you'll also just be a more pleasant person. Others can tell when your goal is to be the best versus to love them. And so to reiterate this first basic lesson, it is hope and pray for the ends of Christ's kingdom more than you pray to be the means. Second thing I'm going to tell you is this. Take this with you. Do not plead. For signs from God on matters for which his word have already spoken clearly or your conscience have already spoken clearly. Don't ask for signs about those things. What do I mean? Do not go to the Lord and say, Lord, give me a sign whether or not I should sleep with my girlfriend out of wedlock. Lord, give me a sign as to whether or not I should tell this person off and let my lips loose so that every mean thing on my tongue flows out. Lord, give me a sign whether you would have me worship every Lord's Day. I'm not sure if you would have me do that. Or Lord, give me a sign that I should get a job and do whatever my vocation is with all of my might. Do you know the problem with asking for signs in regard to these things God has spoken with such utter clarity about all of them that you're virtually saying Lord I don't listen to words I only listen to painful consequences you've told me all these things but your speech and its clarity is not enough you're going to have to give me something that hurts or something that feels good to let me know what you would have me do What a dangerous request that is. Friends, if we live a life that is promiscuous, do not ask God for a sign that he would not have you do that because there are any number of signs from heartache to unwanted pregnancies to all sorts of unmentionable things that he could give you and you're begging for it. If you have a tendency to be lazy, don't ask God for a sign that he wouldn't have you do that. Everything from a leaky roof to a low self-esteem are those sorts of undesirable signs. Israel kept asking for a sign when God had spoken. What she got were undesirable consequences. Guys, this isn't just true about what the word clearly declares. It's true about your conscience, too. In the pastoral ministry, it's not uncommon for people to say, well, you know, I feel uneasy about my drinking habits. And I'll say, well, that's your conscience speaking. It would be a grave error for any one of us in this room to say, Lord, give me a sign that I shouldn't drink six beers in a 45-minute period. I'm just not sure. Has your conscience spoken? Asking for signs in such instances is just a step away from outright unbelief. One final thing to say. It is very clear from this passage that we are to love rather than to fear foreigners. This comes to the fore because it's one of the most heated political matters of our day. What we ought to think about foreigners. 
One of the wonderful things about America is that we've always been a nation that thrived on multiculturalism. We've always been a nation of immigrants from the very beginning. Part of our strength is bound up in it. And part of that is because it is an expression of the kingdom of God, which is one people in many nations. And yet today there's a sort of fear that there are actually more of them and more and more of them than there are of us. People will ask this question, Brant, what do we make of that? Fact of the matter is that in America today, I don't know if you know this, three out of every four new Americans is a foreigner. It is either a foreigner, an immigrant in this land, or their children. That means that the natural-born Americans are not even reproducing themselves by a one-to-one ratio. We are not even produce, reproducing in, in such a degree that we're replacing ourselves. Many of us might say we need to get out from under this curse. Friends, um, if you're trying to stop America from having a vast number of foreigners who outweigh us, it's actually ultimately due to the fact that we are not carrying out the cultural mandate given to us to raise kids up in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. We're not really even having that many kids. And you can take this one of two ways. The influx of foreigners in this land um, is a sort of judgment on what we have not done as a people. Or you can take it as Israel should have taken the gift of tongues as a sort of blessing. Although we have failed to have sons and daughters and raise them up in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord as a people, God has graciously given us another generation of sons and daughters who if we would preach the gospel faithfully, might share our faith even if they don't share our exact DNA. You can take that as a blessing or a curse. I don't mean to pronounce on what this means about the great political issues of our day. Should we build a wall or not? The truth is, I don't know. Know that the Bible says we should generally treat foreigners with equal protection under the law. We should generally be hospitable and loving to them. I also know that in Israel, walls had cities. When dangerous people were outside, they could keep them out. I don't know if a wall is going to accomplish any of those ends. But let me say this. Our passage does speak to this about where our fears really ought to be placed. The fears on the right are often that there are more foreigners coming into this country. There might be reason to fear some dangerous people coming into the country. But may we never so fear foreigners coming into this country as we fear the consequences of less Christian missionaries going out. That is where our fear must be as a Christian people. If the gospel ever ceases to be our chief export, fueled by love for the nations, then America has no business being here, no matter how great we've ever been, no matter how great we are right now. It has no business being on the face of the earth. Blessed to be in a church where many people here have worked for organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translating, missions organizations. We pray at the end of our service every Sunday for a mysterious couple named John and Katie Bonker, whose names I know you have heard, for bringing the gospel to Bangladesh. Let us never be so fearful about who is coming in is that we might not be sending missionaries out. Fears on the left are that we would fail to share our wealth with foreigners, that we'd fail to be hospitable. There's a certain valid fear in that. 
But may we never fear so much our failure to be hospitable to foreigners as to fear our potential success in sharing our secularism, our rampant consumerism, our lifeless way of living with foreigners. You know what? This is going to sound funny, but for me, the very best reason to build a wall around this country and on every border is to keep the foreigners away from the dangers we present to them. Friends, I will tell you what. What makes me want to cry is the thought of people maybe dying to get their kids into this country to save their life, only for us to strip them of their souls once they get here. Entangling them in the sort of nasty secularism and consumerism that is increasingly the reality in this land. The best argument for a wall is to protect our neighbors for some of the grossest sins that prevail in this land. Yes, let us aim to be hospitable with our neighbors, but let us not chiefly attempt to feed them with our wealth so much as we would feed them with the gospel once they get here. So it is. We learn much from this gift, this sign of tongues. If you happen to be with us and you're an unbeliever, I want to say something known in certain terms. God has seen to it that the gospel be published in every single language under the sun so that you would hear it without any ambiguity. I hope you've heard it today. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. A Savior who would take our sin to the cross and die for it Take its consequences for us so that in Christ we might live. I hope you leave with him today. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we like to take your Bible and just assume that things that are obscure or difficult to understand are not relevant to us. You've told us that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for instruction, for reproof training in righteousness and Lord God may we leave this place today having learned from the sign of tongues that your kingdom is for all peoples and all nations may our greatest fears orbit around the failure of the church to do those things may we never as a people regard ourselves as a robin to you as if you were batman God, you've declared in no certain terms that you are Batman, Robin, and the Batmobile. You don't need sidekicks, and you don't need mechanics so badly as you need people who know themselves to be in desperate need of a Savior. May we leave to be that sort of people. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your mighty Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.